Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Hello, welcome to my live stream today. I have a treat for you today. I'm going to share with you my new friend, Lynn Barrett. She is a retired teacher, principal, and pastor, and also an expert on dissociative identity disorder, also known as DID. And for those of you who are new to me, I am Danielle Burnock from DanielleBurnock.com. Love yourself from Survive to Thrive, that lady on the internet who loves you. And that's why I share these interviews with you so you can learn about other people and situations in the world. And if you are dealing with any of these things or you have a friend, you can share these messages of encouragement and hope with other people. And so I'm gonna bring my friend Lynn in here so you can meet her. I'm so excited for this today. Thank you, Lynn, for joining me today. I am so excited to share your expertise with my audience on dissociative identity disorder. I think a lot of people have never heard of it, also called DID or DID. And I just want to thank you for your time and for opening your heart to my audience today. Well, thank you so much, Danielle. It's really an honor uh, for me to be here to talk to you um, and to talk to your audience. Um, and I hope that by sharing um, a little bit of my story and answering your questions that I will um, help uh, people learn more about this um, uh, unique, but not necessarily so rare condition. <laughs> yeah, people think it's rare. A lot of things they don't have in their own life or that they, we don't know about. So let's start with, I know that you told me you don't remember a whole lot about your childhood. So what was your life like before you got your diagnosis of DID? Um, sure, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Um, I, I will just touch back on, on my childhood that um, it, I don't have a lot of concrete memories. Um, I do remember as a, an adolescent feeling um, very defective um, and uh, very unsure of myself. Um, I never dated uh, because uh, my lips trembled when I was around boys. Um, and so I pretty much kept to myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I did manage to create a nice life for myself. Um, uh, when I was a junior in college, I met a man that um, seemed to be a nice man. And he and I uh, fell in love and we got married and um, we had four uh, wonderful children and uh, he was uh, becoming a college professor. And so I 
was the, the proverbial stay-at-home mom, and nothing was more important to me than my children. And so during that period of my life, um, I'd say in my 20s and early 30s, I was living in a fantasy land of wonderfulness. You know, I, life was life was really um, great. Um, but um, somewhere in the mid 30s, things started to peel away, and I didn't understand what they were or what was happening. But um, I would um, experience um, uh, sort of a feeling of unreality. I would I would get triggered over things, and back then I didn't know what that word was or mm-hmm. what it meant. <laughs> Uh, but, um, you know, for instance, when I went to school to become a teacher, mm-hmm. um, and this was after I had children, um, and they were still relatively young, but I was going to school um, for my certification. And, you know, my supervising teacher didn't like what I was doing. And so instead of just rolling with it, it just peeled me apart. And I um uh, I felt incredibly exposed and incredibly defective. And I felt like I was a fake and I shouldn't even be doing this. Um, wow. so, um, so, so my life was really lovely for a while. And then it started to be not so lovely. Um, and I didn't understand why it wasn't so lovely. And my, my wonderful children uh, were starting to have some issues of their own. And my husband, who is my ex-husband, was uh, not home nearly as much as he used to be. And so I was trying to hold the whole bowl of wax together by myself. Um, I did learn that he had an affair. And um, that uh, blew me apart. Now, I want to say that learning that your husband has an affair will blow any woman apart. You know, uh-huh. and uh, uh, for a man to learn that his wife is having an affair will blow a, a man apart. So so the, many of these things that were happening to me happened to many people. Um, and I kept thinking, why aren't I handling this better? Why can't I manage this? Um, uh, and yet I, I, I couldn't. So that's the bottom line is that I was uh, having a really uh, difficult time managing my own inner turmoil which felt like chaos and um, the issues that having a, um, of being a single parent Mm -hmm. and having an ex-spouse who was very, very mean uh, at that time, he was very angry at me because he was having an affair. Um, and <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Well, you'd have to ask him about that question, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just build the sense of, um, uh, of, of, um, uh, misery that was in that, that I was carrying and that my children were of course picking up because of that. And that my husband, my ex-husband in his own way was carrying this as well. Um, so I would share some of the symptoms that I experienced before being diagnosed. Are that, is that what led to your diagnosis is all the symptoms? Well, yes. I, I, so, um, uh, yes. And, and I'll give you some specific examples in a minute. So I didn't feel like myself. I didn't know who I was. And, and they call that identity confusion, but I didn't know what that meant. But I didn't feel like myself. And I felt unreal. Uh, and I, um, 
sometimes felt like I was in the corner of a room looking down on me, this wretched woman who didn't know how to manage these children that she loved so much. Um, I had multiple streams of voices going on in my head, but I didn't know that. I thought it was just chaos. It just felt like inner chaos. Um, and I had body pain everywhere. My whole body throbbed. Um, wow. My skin throbbed. I didn't wow. know what that was all about, but that, that is, that's what we call body memory. It, it's holding decades of, of memory um, of, of hurt and harm that happened when you were a very young child, but I had no idea what that was. Yeah, um, I like that book, The Body Keeps the Score. <laughs> that's a wonderful book. Yes. And that's uh, that's on the side of my bed table because it, it, it really does explain all that. Um, and uh, catatonia, uh, meaning that I would just roll up into a ball in bed um, and pull the covers over my head, um, be in a fetal position. Um, I worked so hard for my children to uh, make their life more stable because of the divorce, but I was I, I appeared to be very ineffective with that, um, and uh, and they were having myriads of issues as well. And although my ex husband loved them very much, um, and he did do things with them, he did everything he could to make it hard for me to do. Uh, for them, what needed to be done. Um, I had suicidal ideation, and I attempted suicide once. Um, I, uh, you know, it, so um, I, when I came out of the hospital after having attempted suicide by taking pills uh, and overdosing, um, I had a part of me was saying, you're alive, you're alive, let's seize the day, you know? And another part of me was saying, what a wimp, you can't even commit suicide right. Uh, wow. You know, you're pathetic. So I had these different kinds of voices going on in my, in my head. Um, and um, uh, so I, and, and I should explain to people that during this time, um, I uh, was a teacher and I actually helped um, some parents start a Quaker school. I eventually became the full-time head of that school. Um, I, uh, once I knew that my husband and I were going to divorce, I uh, moved into public education because I knew I needed to make a better salary. And um, so I was an elementary school teacher and then I went on to become a school principal. So I want you to. How are you that, able to? Well, that's hold the thing. Down these I, kind of jobs. That that's um, that was a part of being multiple. Is I had parts that were uh, total victims and unable to move or accomplish anything, and I had other parts that boom could go right out there and do everything. You know, um, and so so that's um, that was the. Um, one of the, the, the disorienting things is that I felt like I was worthless and I wanted to die, but I also felt really competent and able to, you know, um, conquer the world. And how do you manage those two? That's um, chaos right there, those two in conflict. Yes, it was chaos right there. Um, I, um, two years after I attacked, uh, well, it was interesting. 
so, so the year that I attempted suicide, nobody knew about it. Of course, this was all kept quiet. And uh, and so the school, uh, the Quaker school actually made me the head of school. And there was another sort of uh, dis, uh, disconnected reality that I was attempting suicide, but I also became the head of the school and, and, wow. and you know, was able to, to lead and, and manage and move the school forward. Um, so... I, I went to therapy, but it was very disjointed and not really, uh, I mean, I, nobody knew what was wrong with me. You know, it was just like, it just seemed like nobody knew what was wrong with me. Um, wow. And so I, I had a, a breakdown uh, one day in um, my backyard, writing a letter to my ther- therapist, telling her that I was that I wanted to die and this I was this time I was going to do it uh, and I was going to be successful at it and so different parts of me came up and wrote in different handwritings all of these crazy things in this letter including scribbles all across the page and I mailed it off to her and then of course you know she, she encouraged me to go to the hospital and uh, I went it was many many people with DID have some really um uh, unhelpful and severe hospitalization experiences. Um, and, but that was not true for me. I was in a really um, uh, wonderful women's unit. Uh, we did not know I had DID. Uh, we just knew that this was this woman who had a lot of things in her court and yet she was falling apart. And so I, the hospitalization was really helpful in stabilizing me. Um, okay. And I when I when I came out of, of the 30 days, um, I had a new job. I was no longer going to be leading the Quaker school. I knew that I couldn't. I knew that my emotional stability wouldn't allow me to continue that. So I, I had a, a job in a public school, um, I moved to a new town a half an hour away. Um, by this time, uh, two of my four children had uh, were, were older and out either at college or working. Uh, but I, my two younger children um, uh, were, I, I'm trying to remember, maybe 13 and 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that they needed um, consistent care. And I asked my ex-husband if he would take them to live uh, with them because I, I, I knew that I needed to work on myself and I was worried that I wouldn't be able to provide for them what they needed. Well, he was willing to take my daughter, but not my son. So my son and oh, I. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, we we moved to this 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 city um, about a half an hour away, and um, I, that is when I, I had to look for a new therapist, and I found a new therapist who was uh, experienced with dissociative disorders. And so it was while I was working with her about a year after my hospitalization that I was diagnosed. Um, so I, this has been a long answer to your story about what led up to the diagnosis or what my life was like to the diagnosis. But actually, that yeah. Uh, so I hope that was helpful. Oh, yeah. Well, how did that diagnosis make you feel? How did you respond to that? Was it relieving? Was it upsetting? Was it both? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's interesting uh, because it's it's very shocking and uh, hard to incorporate into your sense of self 
uh, for most people. But and and that's true for me too. But on another level, it, it I felt relief because I truly felt crazy. I, you know, I couldn't make any sense of anything that had been happening to me, mostly internally, but also externally. And I, I felt crazy. And so in getting that diagnosis, at least it helped me to understand, uh, or at least have some understanding of why um, this might be happening to me. Now, I have to also say that I didn't believe it. Um, and Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> well, I, I want that, to, that's actually a symptom of DID. Almost every person who is diagnosed with DID doesn't believe it, or they go in and out of periods of not believing it. We feel as if, uh, oh, I must be faking this. I'm faking this but these things keep happening. And so that's actually a part of the symptomology of DID is that the person who has it doesn't believe themselves. And the reason they don't believe themselves is because DID is caused by early, uh, chronic early childhood um, trauma and abuse. And so when you're a little child, you, um, you, you need your caregivers. You yeah. need to believe they care about you. So when these kinds of things start happening to you and your caregivers are responsible or negligent, um, it's, it's actually functional for the child to block it out and not remember it because then the child can go back and continue to rely on that caregiver um, who gives them life. Um, And it's very disconcerting or disorienting for a very small child, of course, to have a caregiver who loves them and who also abuses them. How do you put those two things together? It's really hard. Um, And so that's why we, um, uh, what happened in early childhood is Um, functional and important in early childhood um, that we responded in that way, but it's dysfunctional and totally unhelpful as an adult. So we have to unlearn all that. So part of what we had learned as a child was to not believe those things. Those things didn't happen, you know? And so I want to pause here and just draw attention to my audience. I want to pause on this moment of how that disassociation is a normal functional response for a child, not as an adult, but as a child. And that's a reason why many people don't remember certain things from their childhood because it was a normal functional response. So anyone watching, listening, you have giant parts of your past that are missing. I implore you, look and see if there's a reason so that you can heal. Thank you for emphasizing that. Yes. I try to do that in the things that are real important because we could just be talking and talking and people can miss it because, you know, we just we get involved in the story and it's like, no, there's a point to this. And so many people suffer because they don't remember. And so they think they don't remember. So it doesn't matter. But 
you have side effects to what you don't remember. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what we need to focus on is, you know, that's how you found your diagnosis is you had all those side effects came forward to the point where finally you found someone who could put the puzzle pieces together and say, aha, this is what we have. And still you had to struggle with taking ownership of that truth because part of the dysfunction didn't want to believe it. That's but right. I remember you told me in our, our talk before we did this about your relentless drive to know yourself. And that's how you heal. Why don't you share with us how you how did you heal from this and how can other people heal from this? Uh, thank you. If you want to go into more of what actually is DID, you also called it a hidden disorder. But I think we kind of touched on that without the little title, but maybe we need that little title of hidden <laughs> disorder because we need to bring things to the light because people yes. can't heal what they can't see. Well, I want to go back to what you said about um, uh, how I um, wanted to know myself. Mm -hmm. And and to bring in the faith piece here uh, just a little bit, because oh, cool. I I had I had been born and raised an atheist. My father had taught me that people who believe in God are either stupid or weak, and of course I didn't want to be stupid or weak, so I didn't believe in God. Um, but it was over this time that I began to um, uh, 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 to to um, viscerally and emotionally need God, even if cognitively I couldn't believe in God. And I found that, uh, I, I, of course, I learned the serenity prayer uh, mm -hmm. when I was in the hospital. And I took the serenity prayer, which is, and I hope I don't mess it up, but God grant me the serenity to uh, accept the things um, I cannot change, change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And, um, and I changed that for me. Uh, and it was God, um, give me the courage, the strength, and the wisdom to know myself and do your will. And uh, I didn't even believe in God when I made when I when I, I created that prayer, but I prayed it over and over again. And it was so very important uh, for me during my time of healing. Um, I want to uh, mention uh, the altars, because that's another symptom. And it's the one that gets the most press. Um, it's the most sensationalized part of DID. Um, right. Before we get into that, can we back up just to oh. one of the things that you said, because some people might not know the meaning of one of the words you use. You said that even though you didn't have the cognitive ability to believe in God, you needed him, you said emotionally and viscerally. Yes. Viscerally is that internal stomach gut. And that's the physical response to our emotional need. If you want to elaborate on that, but that's what I've learned that visceral, that's, you know, when you get butterflies in your stomach, you get the lump in your throat. It's the physical representation of an emotional need. So I, I wanted to elaborate on that term for people. If you want to elaborate on it or if that's sufficient, then fine. Well, thank you. And that that's really good. The only thing I can add to that is that I, felt and and again here i am uh, had moved to a, a larger city and was a, a well-respected teacher um, in a public school system and i knew that i would not make it through the day that i, I felt like i would die if i didn't pray that prayer wow. that's how deep it was it was uh, it was wow. just so visceral at the same time i could go out in the classroom 
and and do you know a great job teaching but internally uh that's where it was visceral for me it, you know it, the fire in the belly gut uh or the fire in the belly death as it might be called in my case so yes yeah Wow. And then you wanted to elaborate on the altars. You wanted to talk about the altars. Yeah, um, because th there's... Like define what is an altar. For <laughs> Good people question. Like, What's an altar? What are we talking about? You said God. We talk about altars and God. And we're talking about your personalities, right? Or the identities. Right. So altar, altars can also be called um, insiders um, or uh, parts or headmates, different people call their parts different things. Okay. Um, but the most common term is alters. So when, when I was a child, when someone with DID is a small child and is being um, uh, abused or exposed to trauma over and over again without any escape and nowhere to go, they, their brains are still forming. They're not fully formed until they're somewhere between eight and 10 years old. So in the, that time from birth to maybe seven years old or, or whatever, the, the brain has the capacity to actually cordon off um, some cognition, cordon off some memory. So, um, it, it starts doing that just naturally uh, in the face of trauma. But when the trauma happens over and over again, the barriers between the memories, the barriers between the, the, the senses of self get thicker and thicker, you know, as the abuse continues and as the child grows. So that the child uh, has, so, so the child who curls up into his lap and is hurt, um, hands the memory and the pain to someone else. So that same child can curl up on his lap and get hurt again, because the child also needs the comfort of knowing that this person is there and will, will protect them. And because a child needs um, right. uh, to have a caregiver. And so, so you'll have different parts hold different memories but you also have these parts also uh, as as you grow they start to handle uh, uh parts of uh, uh, characteristics uh, personality traits you know mm -hmm. so in my case um i had i probably had about 20 alters um i have i am publishing my memoir which it will be published um on uh, january 3rd uh, 2022. And its title is crazy, reclaiming life uh, from the shadow of the shadow of traumatic memory. And um, so um, let's see what where what, <laughs> what was I talking about before I went to the memoir? Um, the altars. Oh, oh, about 20 of yeah, them. I, I introduced I introduced 12 altars. Um, uh, very, very clearly in the memoir so you can get to know them um, and really kind of experience them as I experienced them um, and what their functions were and what their roles were. Um, and um, so all, most people who have DID have what we call covert DID. And that means that we, um, 
because this is a hidden disorder, uh, we don't let a whole lot of other people know about these different parts of us, you know. So you may have a neighbor next door or um, somebody that you met uh, on, on the, the train or a family member or uh, you, you might know people who have DID and have no clue that they have it because unless you are very intimate with them, they are unlikely to um, reveal that to you. And in, in reality, they may not have even revealed it to themselves initially because mm-hmm. it, takes, it takes 10 to 12 years for most people with DID to be accurately diagnosed. Um, and there's a lot of resistance to that diagnosis because we were, we were programmed not mm-hmm. to tell. We were programmed not to tell. So um, the, the research says uh, that between one and 5% of the population worldwide has DID. That's comparable to the number of people who have bipolar disorder. Wow. Uh, but we hear about bipolar disorder. The only time we hear about DID is usually when it's sensationalized. So most of the time, you're not going to know that somebody has it unless you are very intimate with them, if you're married to them, or a deep, deep, deep close friend. Uh, It's nothing for you as an individual to be afraid of. Um, The fact, the idea that DID people are violent is a, um, uh, is a uh, misperception. Uh, Usually, people with DID, if they are going to be violent, are violent against themselves, but not against other people because their default, our default mode is to become a victim ourselves. So Mm -hmm. we're not likely to be, I I won't say it never happens because I'm sure it does, but it's rare that we become perpetrators because we're so busy being victims, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So... um, so it is nothing to be afraid of. Um, you can't fix the person with DID, uh, but you can be a listener and you can be a support person and love them and you can encourage them to get treatment um, because you, re- you it's, um, I, I hesitate to say you can never heal without uh, treatment um, because everyone is different. And, and there probably are some people out there who have achieved a level of peace uh, without treatment. But I would say that for most of us, we need uh, trauma, um, uh, trauma-informed trauma therapy um, and real significant support and help during the most um, difficult time of, um, of treatment. So... Right. Yeah. You mentioned two different ways of healing. You said that you healed one way, but some people heal another way. Can you elaborate on those two different ways that someone can heal from DID? Sure. Well, it's it's not exactly two different ways, but it's two different endpoints. So so the way we, we all have to pretty much have the same kind of treatment, which is primarily talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and with a therapist who is willing to work with your alters, uh, who is not afraid of your alters, who welcomes them into the therapy room and who wants to hear their stories because that's how you heal. Because as your, as your alters 
tell their stories to someone who is safe and gives them reality checks, um, then gradually the, the walls of dissociation between the altars lower um, and they, um, uh, and, and then, and then you, you get to know each other, you know, <laughs> yeah, you, you get to know your altars, you get to know who this is and who that person is. And, you know, your altars may disagree with each other sometimes, and sometimes they're really supportive of each other. All of them exist in order to save your life. They exist in order to save our lives. And so we have to learn to love them, even though we're really ticked off that we even have this disorder and that they are screwing up my life. Uh, you know, these are the things we say to each other when we have DID friends. Yeah, you're being but, real, you're being vulnerable. Yeah. You're sharing the raw thing. And I appreciate that because people need to hear that because it's not like, oh, you go to therapy, all done. Right. No, definitely not. And ultimately, in the end, we have to love we, we have to love our altars because when we love our altars, we're loving ourselves. Yep. And then, so, so when that happens, then there are two different tracks. So, so everyone with DID has to go through that. I, I would also note that there, there are medications for secondary symptoms, um, you know, for anxiety and depression and so on and so forth. But there is no medication that simply addresses DID. The only thing that addresses DID is having that, uh, those, those um, sessions with your therapist uh, about uh, and with yourself, uh, you know, uh, uh, to hear what your your altars have to say. So that's the pr that's how we heal. But we that's a validation people, of what really took place. Yes, because the altars have all the different stories. So it's the validation mm -hmm. of what really took place. The validation of this story. The validation of this story. The validation of this story. Then you can put the puzzle all together, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, and that's and so what what happens. Um, uh, which is actually, I, I was, I, I'm going to jump in with something I didn't uh, prepare you for, but this is the third phase of treatment. And we didn't talk about the first two, but the third phase of treatment would be sort of integrating all this information together so that um, you as a person know everything and everyone knows everything. And for some of us, we go ahead and our in, our altars integrate into one. They call it fusing. Um, and um, I don't like that word because my altars are still there. I, you know, but they trust me. And so they rarely come out and, you know, say anything or do anything. I face things as one person, but I have. Um, so Mike was the one who carried anger so I still have that, you know, I, I can feel it when Mike's getting angry inside of me, you know, and, um, you know, Laura was the professional who could handle anything uh, professionally. So, hey, she's out here talking to you right now, but she's not because it's me, it, it, because we're not separate anymore. We're all one. Um, but some people choose to remain separate in parts, and we call that functional multiplicity. Um, and what that means is that all the, other, all the other symptoms of abuse and dissociation have been healed, but um, the, the system, which is what we call the whole collection of alters and how they relate to each other, the whole system has decided that they do not want to integrate, that they want to, uh, or they don't do not want to fuse, that they want to remain separate, but collaborative. Um, and so there again, it, it, you know, you might have someone who's, 
not in therapy anymore, who's high functioning, um, and who still has parts because uh, they've chosen to do that. In my case, I, I, I really, really wasn't my choice. My, my, my parts integrated on their own very, very organically and gently. Um, and uh, we had had some conversations about it and I was trying to encourage them uh, to do that. And some of them were resisting. And then I went to uh, Martha's Vineyard (laughs) Uh, and, and there it just happened, you know? Um, And so, um, yeah, so, so, so the treatment is the same or mostly the same for most people, but the end result can be different based on what their choices are. Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about something I just realized, and we didn't get to uh, like the end of that. You mentioned about how the faith played a part in that, but then you ended up becoming a pastor. How did you go from, (laughs) I don't believe in God, and I have to pray this every day because my gut says so, to becoming a pastor? What what was that journey about? Um, I think that um, my faith journey was intimately involved with my healing journey. Um, I, as a small child, I yearned for God, uh, but I couldn't believe in God because my parents didn't. And you just don't when your parents Yeah, you got to do what they say, right? They said, yeah, you, well, you don't want to be stupid in a week, so. <laughs> and, you know, and your parents are, are, are a sort of God for us when we're little. You know, we look to them as being, as being um, the, the creator, the giver, the carer. I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh, who God is they're so, bigger than us. They're in charge of everything. That's right. Yeah. And, and they can, they can, they can take out retribution on us too. If, uh, yeah. yeah. But I, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say that my, my, my journey into atheism through my parents was a, was authentic. I mean, it was, it was a real search and I became an exist existentialist after I read Jean-Paul Sartre and, you know, I had all these thoughts in my head and I, I don't believe in God. And then I married my husband and he was an ex-Catholic and he didn't believe in God. So we had this little um, godless family. And I did start to, towards the end of that marriage before I knew he was having an affair, but still um, while I was, um, uh, you know, I, I'd started to feel some, uh, I can look back and realize that my sense of self was starting to peel away, but I didn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, um, I felt um, like uh, I, I started to feel uncomfortable. With, I still was an atheist, but I was uncomfortable with sort of the, the negative ways that my family talked about people with faith. And it was just a very slow thing. I, 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 I told you about my one prayer. The prayer I prayed before that was really in the beginning, before I had no idea that God answered prayers. I just prayed, God, give me strength, give me wisdom. God, give me strength, give me wisdom. I, you know, that was just to stay alive. That was, that was just to cope wow. with every minute of every day. Wow. But about a year later, I looked back and I thought, I am getting a little stronger. And, and I think I'm a little smarter now about some things. And it was, is, is God answering my prayers? You know, I, I was really um, stunned by that, but I still didn't believe in God. I, I couldn't, I couldn't go there. And um, so, and so I was hired by a group of parents to start a Quaker school. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so they interviewed me a number of times and we really connected and I knew they wanted the kind of 
teaching that I could provide. And I thought they might offer me the position. So after one of the interviews, I said to them, I, uh, I need to be honest with you. I really, uh, I, I, I've loved interviewing with you and I hope you offer me the position, but you need to know before you do that, um, that I don't believe in God. Well, these uh, women and men looked at me and they said, in different ways, they said, that's just fine. We know that you have a spirituality that will help our children grow. Don't you worry about that. You know, so I, I went away wow. and I think the next week they offered me the position. So I was in a, so Quakers believe there's that of God in every person. And Quakers also um, uh, sit in an hour of silence every week, a contemplative space out of which people will sometimes share and speak words from God. And um, it was the perfect place for me because I wasn't capable of believing in any doctrine or dogma at that time, mm -hmm. but I needed a place to heal. And I would tell the children every week in meeting for worship that there's that of God in every one of you, because that's what Quakers say. And, you know, after about a year of doing that, I thought to myself, I don't feel like I'm lying. I feel like I'm telling the truth when I say that. So, so these little things just started happening and happening. I became very involved. I, I, I did receive my faith as a Quaker. Um, and then I, uh, a number of years later, I wanted to um, have to experience more liturgy, um, a little more form to my faith. So um, I had, you know, I had become a principal then. My son had moved back in with me um, and my daughter was nearby and my other two children were nearby. And so things were getting better and better. And I, I just walked. It, it, I always laugh and say this. I chose the church I went to for deep theological reasons. Basically, I didn't know anything about church. I just looked around my neighborhood and found the biggest church I could find. And I walked, I could walk that I could walk to. And I walked down there. <laughs> And it was the United Church of Christ. And I was like, wow, the, the there was a beautiful service. And the pastor's sermons were just, just spoke so directly to me. And so I stayed there. And, uh, you know, I started to become involved in the church. And um, I um, uh, went to retreats. I led retreats. And um, eventually um, I, I took classes and eventually... Um, I prayed myself um, into seminary. <laughs> uh, so, and, and it's a much longer story than I'm sharing with you, but um, that's sort of the, the, the quick outline. Oh, thank you. That is fascinating. It's like, it amazes me the grace and gentleness that God reaches for us with. Yes. In my book, I called him the pursuer because I didn't I tried to prove he didn't exist because of all different reasons. That's not the point, but it was the pursuer. He didn't, he didn't give up on me and his gentleness, his grace. And he gave you those visceral things and little by little by little, because he knows, knows where you were, what you needed. And he met you right where you, where you are. And that's something I want to offer to my audience, you know, wherever you're at, God loves you. Pray whatever prayer you can come up with, just like how Lynn did. You don't need to mimic anybody. Just reach for him and he'll reach back because he loves you. And he does a miraculous healing things. Sometimes it takes longer than other times, but we get there. Right? You got there. You're, you're still working on life is a daily, a daily thing. It is. So how can Absolutely. people connect with you and, and tell them the name of your book again? 
the name of my um, memoir is called um, Crazy, uh, Reclaiming Life from the Shadow of Traumatic Memory. Uh, it's um, uh, published by Kohler Books, and it uh, will be released on January 3rd, 2022. It is um, actually on pre-order on Amazon and um, Barnes and Noble online right now. So if you're interested in it, um, you can go um, uh, to their sites and, and put the name of the book in and you can find it. Um, you can also uh, go to my website, uh, www.lynnbarrett.com. I'll spell that for you, www.lynnbarrett.com. And uh, you will find um, a lot more information about me uh, and what I offer. You'll find uh, about my book. I uh, can read some reviews of it. Um, and um, so I, I've just started a promotion uh, this week uh, where anyone who pre-orders and uh, emails their um their pre-order receipt to me, the first 50 people who do that um, will get a free tote bag that has a picture of the cover on it. Uh, so, but you have to go through the, you have to go through my website in order to do that. Okay. Um, the other thing I'd like to share, Danielle, is um, that I have been um, uh, I, I, on my website is a weekly blog uh, about living with DID and what it's like. Uh, it's meant to be informational and inspirational to hold out hope for people who are really in the depths because I might look like I'm great right now. And to be frank, I am, <laughs> but it's been 20 years since I integrated. And so for 20 years, I was, um, uh, you know, I, I, I was suicidal every day. I was in pain every day. Um, I was um, experiencing memories and fighting back against them every day. Um, and so um, people with DID, um, I don't want to send the image that it's easy because it isn't. It is so hard and we need inspiration. And I want to be an inspiration to show people that, um, you know, th there, there are seasons of our lives and, and there's another season coming for you. Um, so, so hang in there and here are some grounding techniques or here are some ideas to help with this or that. Um, and so free ebook called DID Unpacked, right? I do. I I'll grab the link to that and include it in the uh, show great, notes with this stuff. Great. And I would love to hear from any of your viewers, Danielle. Um, there is a contact um, form that they can uh, go to and fill out and um, uh, uh, reach out to me. Uh, one other thing that I have started. Um, uh, writers workshops for people with dissociative disorder. And uh, we have, uh, they, we meet every other week. We have one uh, in the afternoon, Eastern time and one in the evening, Eastern time every two weeks. And um, it's, it's, it's a safe place to bring your writing um, because the people who come understand what you've been through or what you're going through. And yeah, and it's and it, and it's a, a, a another way uh, to heal, and it's another way to communicate with your parts. 
That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I will definitely get the link to that free little book that you have and include information about your workshops and stuff. And thank you for sharing with my audience today. I just really appreciate you being so vulnerable and, and candid with everyone. Danielle, it's really been an honor and a blessing for me to be here. And thank you for inviting me. And if I and if talking with you helps one person out there, then uh, we've done our job, right? Amen. 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 I'll see you in a minute. Well, thank you everyone for being with us today. That was just fascinating to hear Lynn's story of her struggle, her struggle in the midst of DID, not knowing what it was, struggle to integrate out of it and just how she is working to help other people. If you know anyone who you even think might be struggling with this, maybe not, maybe you grab a copy of that free ebook for yourself to read up on it to see so you can educate yourself or pass it along to someone who needs it. And just remember, I love you. Danielle Burnock from DanielleBurnock.com. Love yourself from Survive to Thrive. Mwah. Thank you so much for listening to the Victorious Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at DanielleBurnock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.